I don't think we get, or I don't think I get, how much that affects our behavior and how we uh, feel about our lives, about, you know, about what's going on, about ourselves. So I pray, God, that today would be a reminder, really, both in our heads and our hearts. I've been reminded this week, Jesus, how uh, profoundly important this topic is for us. And I've been reminded that we come together here on Sunday mornings not only to rehearse and to celebrate who you are, but also who we are in you. And so help us to celebrate that this morning with all ten toes and ten fingers in. Help us to accept and rejoice in who you've made us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I got a, an email this week from Mike Cannon that was a list of those church bloopers. I know some of you have seen them before. We've used them before here at Gateway, but it's just a, a random list from the Internet, and everything on the Internet is true. It's a random list from the Internet taken from uh, bloopers in church programs over the years. So as Mike said, you know, he's imagining some gray-haired woman or gray-haired man in this case typing out a church program, in case anyone's wondering, I never type out the church program, but uh, typing out a church program and introducing some of these bloopers. So I like this first one. Uh, it makes me think of our worship team, Miss Charlene Mason, saying, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. This is especially appropriate for a church since we believe so strongly in marriage, this next one. Irvin Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church, so ends a friendship that began in their school days. This one will be useful for us, I think, once we're in the building. We can use this. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the basement on Friday afternoon. <laughs> and then I like this one, too, also for our new building. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. is a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. Since we're in a pledging season here at Gateway, <laughs> I really like these. Hey, please place your donation in the envelope along with the deceased person you want to remember. That's going to make the envelopes really heavy. And I really like this one. I think we may need to rename our campaign. I owe my pledge. Up yours. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in the church program, Mark. Finally, this one is offered this morning as an introduction to our sermon series. The sermon this morning, Jesus Walks on Water. The sermon tonight, Searching for Jesus. So, we're moving toward the end of a series of lessons we're calling Finding Jesus, not because he's lost, but because we occasionally will lose him because of the haze and the mist that we allow our lives and our schedules and our stuff to put in front of us, and we have difficulty staying in touch with Jesus. And today we're going to, and this week, by the way, and if you have not joined us yet in the devotionals online, I want to encourage you this week to join us in uh, this week's journey, gatewaychurch.org. We have a Finding Jesus Lenten devotional series, and each morning it's just a 15 or 20 minute exercise, and this week I think will be really, really fruitful for us. You know what I realized this week? This conversation this morning, our topic this morning, is one of those lenses through which you can see everything. And I didn't realize that. That's why the message today, and y'all bear with me, 
So I want to tell you from the beginning, we're going to be looking at an epic passage of Scripture from John chapter 6. We could spend, and I'm not kidding, we could spend like a year. John Malella said that to me yesterday. We could spend a year looking at John chapter 6. We're just going to look at it for a couple of snippets about Jesus' identity. And then at the end, we're going to wrap around back to a profound Christianity 101 kind of observation about us. So if I stumble through this, it's because this message has kind of rewound itself several times this week as I've realized how incredibly important this topic is. Let me, you know, let me give you an idea of what I mean. If you were to say, talk about love, and you were to look at, you know, like a diamond, you were to look at the story of Jesus and who He was, what He did, and our connection to God, if you were to look at it through the facet of love, you could see like the whole thing. And then if you turned the diamond, and if you looked through the facet of grace, you could really see the whole story through the facet of grace. I realized early this week, today's topic is kind of one of those facets that if you spin the diamond and look through the entire story of God and His connection to us and our attempts to connect to Him, if you look through the facet of identity, you can see the whole thing. It all lays out for you. So this morning is an incredibly important topic. And, uh, you know, never do this as a communicator, but I'm apologizing in advance. This thing unwound and rewound on me so many times, I'm going to try to make sure if you miss it all, don't miss the two really cool observations about Jesus and then the profound Christianity 101 discovery we're going to get to at the end. But before we do that, you've been up and down several times today. I apologize, but another exercise in spiritual aerobics. I want you, even those of you who are moderately shy, I want you to stand and find some, don't travel, but find someone fairly near you that you don't know well, and I want you to introduce yourself without using your name. I'm going to give you a second to think about that. So I want you to introduce yourself to someone with two pieces of information without using your name. Okay, stand and introduce yourselves to one another. All right, that's enough. You may be seated. That's more than two pieces of information. You may be seated. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's a part of what I mean. I want to encourage you sometime, especially if you're in a position where you're seeking out answers to some of these things that we talk about here on Sunday morning. Really, especially if you're in that position. But if you have a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, I want to encourage you sometime to read through one of the biographies of Jesus, but especially John. Because I read through John a couple of times this week. And think of it through the lens of identity. It's really incredible. In fact, you can make the point that that's really what John is all about. John starts his biography of Jesus not with a sort of chronological setup, you know, like the other guys did, or or what would have been very common for an ancient Near Eastern Jewish author to begin a a biographical work with a, a list of ancestors, and then story of birth and beginnings. John begins with these huge philosophical identifiers, identity markers, identity symbols. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Light came into the darkness and walked among them. And they didn't recognize Him over and over. He's giving these identifiers. And then this very next story is about John the Baptist. And, you know, he, he gives a little setup for John the Baptist. And then Jewish authorities come to John the Baptist and say, Who are you? Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Look, one is coming after me who's like a way bigger deal than I am. I'm not even fit to wipe his shoes. And it's going to be made clear to us, and then it is made clear to John, there he is, the Lamb of God. Another identifier that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, if you just look at the sheer number of identifiers that Jesus applies to Himself, that others apply to Him, and that John, the editor and the biographer, apply to Jesus in John. This is the reason that many New Testament scholars are critical of John's work as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They will want to say things like, oh, John, John was written 200 years after Jesus, you know, when church kind of got things settled down about Jesus. Because if you've ever heard the argument from some sect outside of Orthodox Christianity even believes the Bible, but interprets it very, very differently and says, you know, Jesus never really makes it very clear who He was and what He was about. He does in John. Good shepherd, living water, giver of life, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, Lamb of God, Son of God, Son of Man, Rabbi, Teacher, Lord, Master, God. All of that stuff is in John and it's used repeatedly. Jesus actually unveils Himself in the book of John. It's about identity. And the first thing we learn about Jesus' identity, don't miss this point number one, the first thing we learn about Jesus' identity is how secure it was. I don't have time to chase this all the way through the book of John, but Jesus was profoundly firm about who He was and secure in who He was. There were plenty of opportunities for that to be shaken. There were opportunities for him to experience identity confusion, but he was unmoved. He was completely secure in who he was. I'm going to look at the beginning, just the opening little story in John chapter 6, and I won't read all of this. It's on the screen. John 6 begins in the first 14 verses with an incredible incident where Jesus actually takes a meal from a young boy and multiplies it, and some have described this as the miracle of generosity you know jesus shows the crowd what to do and then their food gets passed around you really don't get that indication as startling as it is especially in the other accounts it seems as if jesus multiplied this food somehow (laughs) and he takes this one meal and it feeds five thousand men and john is clear that it there may have been twelve thousand people there And the meal gets passed around. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, so by this point in his ministry, Jesus is becoming a rock star. They began to say, surely this is the prophet, another identifier. Who is to come into the world? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Because he wasn't king. 
Not in the way that they wanted him to be king. And he knew that. In the midst of praise, in the midst of adulation, in the midst of a crowd of people wanting to make him king. I don't know about you, but seriously, I would have been like, okay. They want to make him king. You basically get all power, you lead us. But Jesus' identity is secure in the midst of criticism. Jesus' identity is unmoved. Eric Erickson was a 20th century developmental psychologist. I'm taking you back, for those of you who went to college, to intro psychology. He articulated an influential theory of identity development, Erickson did. He suggested that our identity, our sense of ourselves is the way he defined that, advances through eight stages. And each of the stages must be navigated successfully and effectively if we are to be healthy, integrated individuals. So if we're to have connectedness and if we're to have a relationship, we've got to navigate these stages of development effectively and healthily. So these are Erickson's psychosocial stages. The first four are the stages that we advance through in childhood. The first is trust versus mistrust between birth and one year, and these build on one another. Uh, the conflict here involves whether or not the infant can develop a sense of trust, and there are going to be issues throughout their life if they cannot develop a sense of trust in those early months. Then comes autonomy versus shame and doubt. This is early childhood. The conflict involves whether or not the child can develop a healthy sense of control and independence. Then comes initiative versus guilt. This is preschool age. The conflict involves whether or not the child develops a sense of capability and even the capacity to lead others. If not, they're going to struggle with self-doubt and undue guilt, perhaps for the rest of their lives. Finally, elementary school is industry versus inferiority, elementary school years, and through social interactions, children begin to develop a sense of pride in their accomplishments and abilities. Then we get into the adult years, really it begins with adolescence, and this is the stage that Erickson highlights. He calls it identity versus confusion. During adolescence, children explore, we all explore, our independence and we develop a sense of ourselves. Then this stage of self must hold together, Erickson says, through the later stages of development. Our sense of who we are must hold together if we're going to navigate the rest of our years, our adult years. And those stages are intimacy versus isolation, generativity versus stagnation. Will we live for others? Will we be given or will we stagnate within ourselves? And then integrity versus despair. It's interesting to read Erickson with Jesus in mind. He exhibited incredible health and mastery over every stage of development. Because his identity was always secure in the midst of the fiercest criticism. Jesus not only knew who he was, but he was unwavering in it, and he communicated it. And in the midst of praise, praise that could have knocked him off course, adulation that could have led Jesus to think something other about himself, get himself off his own personal life course, unmoved because of the rock-solid nature of his self-identification. The second thing, as we look through Jesus' story, that becomes obvious about Jesus' self-understanding, and don't miss this, is that his sense of his own identity comes from his connection to the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 19, real quick, we're going to go back one chapter. Jesus says this, 
Here he's facing criticism. The Jews were being critical of him, and Jesus gave them this answer in verse 19. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I'm the one who does whatever the Father is doing. So no matter what you say to me, I'm looking at the world through the lens of what is God doing? What is the Father doing? And I'm going to do that. It goes on in verse 24, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. I'm going to summarize verses 31 through 44. Jesus is still responding to criticism. And go back and read this later and read it through the lens of the security, the the certainty of Jesus' self-understanding and where that understanding comes from. Jesus basically says to his critics, look, if I testify about myself, if I'm explaining to you, if my sense of who I am and what I tell you about me comes from me, He says flat out, it's not valid. But he says there's another who testifies about me. He goes on and says, hey, you listened to John the Baptist. You thought he was intriguing. Some of you went out to him, followed his teaching, and were baptized by him. Well, John recognized me. Don't don't you remember that? John recognized who I was. But I have a testimony even weightier than John's. I have a testimony that comes from above. His identity was Rock solid, unmoved, and it came from his connection to the Father. Okay, back to chapter 6, verses 28 through 35. I have to tell you, this next section is really going to get bleed dramatically into our final point, but I'm going to read it anyway. John 6, 28 through 35, again, he's being questioned. They asked him, verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one he sent. Now he's already, and he will again, recognize himself as the one whom the Father has sent. So they ask him, okay, look, what miraculous sign then can you give us that we can see and believe? Because this is the pattern we know about. What work will you do? Our forefathers, they had a work that confirmed things for them. They ate manna in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven above to eat. Jesus said to them, okay, let me tell you how it is. I'll tell you the truth. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. It's not about your traditions. It's not about the way you've thought about religion or the way you conceived of God when you were a little child. It's not even about the best of your tradition, which is Moses. It's not about that. It's about the Father and how He's showing Himself to you and to us. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Teaser. They say, sir, from now on give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. (laughs) He who comes to Me will never go hungry and he who believes in Me will never be thirsty. It's not about our traditions. It's about God. It's not even primarily about our story. It's about God's story, and we get to be part of it. Okay, now I'm going to skip over to verse 57 of chapter 6. Jesus says this intriguing thing, but just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So, first of all, let's highlight the first part of that verse. 
just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. See, look, Jesus knows that He lives because of the Father. He does what He sees the Father doing. He does what the Father tells Him to do. He lives in obedience. He lives by watching for God's activity and then joining God. He lives because God has given Him life and given Him a mission. Uh, The Father sent Him, and as such, He's the bread of life. He's the one that represents the Father. And the life-giving qualities of God Himself, of the universe maker and the star namer, the life qualities of, of the Creator are flowing through Him. And He lives in radical dependence, and His identity is never in question. Firm and secure because of His connection to the Father. Jesus' identity was firmly secure and it was inextricably linked to His obedience to the Father and it grew out of His relationship to the Father. I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus' identity was firmly secure and it was inextricably linked to His obedience to the Father and it grew out of His relationship with the Father. Okay, this is amazing. So point one and two are awesome and good reminders. And it reminds us how incredibly sophisticated Jesus is, how cool He is, and how admirable He is, and what a profound model Jesus is for us. This healthy, firm, secure, settled, rested identity that was based solely on His connection to the Father. But if that's all we have, then that doesn't really impact our lives very much. It provides a good example, but it doesn't impact our lives profoundly. And this is where it began to unravel for me this week. I realized something, I don't know, you know how you see something that you've known for a long time? This is Christianity 101, what I'm about to say. Something you've known for a long time, but you see it in a new way or from a new direction or through a new lens, and you go, what? Wow! This passage, in fact, the whole story of Jesus offers us far more than just Jesus as A great example, Jesus with a really firm identity, a really, really consistent, firm sense of who He was and a sense of who He was that came completely from His connection to the Father. Awesome. Really awesome. Incredibly impressive. Worthy of admiration and worship. But doesn't necessarily profoundly impact our lives. So here's the profound implication. The point of John's biography The point of the whole Gospel story is not to help us identify Jesus. We're not after the right understanding of Jesus' self-identity. Not primarily. That was not John's primary point. The primary point is not that you and I get the right information about who Jesus was. That's not John's purpose. It wasn't Matthew, Mark, or Luke's purpose. It's not what's primarily going on in the New Testament. The primary thrust of their writing and their ministry, their service to us, what's changed generations of people and has spread throughout the whole globe is not our effort to identify and clearly understand who Jesus was. That's not what John's after. The point of John's biography is to help us find our identity in Jesus. John chapter 6. 41 through 51. This is the passage in between the two passages we've looked at so far. At this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. First of all, that sounds pretty weird. 
Secondly, they said, look, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Aren't those his identifiers? Aren't those the indicators of who he is? We know this guy. That's Joseph's son. That's the carpenter's son. He made a lousy bench for me one time. His father and mother, we know them. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Aside from being strange, let's acknowledge right away that Jesus does not ask for us to understand Him. Or even to know exactly who He is. What He wants is for us to come to Him. He wants us to drink from Him. To eat of Him. To follow Him. He wants to be our sustenance. He wants us to drink Him like living water. He can't find enough imagery. He's ransacked the language looking for ways to explain. Come in and have a connection with Me. Find who you are in Me. Let your identification come not from Facebook, but from your connection to Me. That's how you know who you really are. That's how you sing. That's how you become who God designed you to be. When you learn who you are through My eyes, And let my power transform you in the person that I created you to be. Look, this is not like calculus. Learning who we are in Jesus is not like calculus. took calculus in high school and then again in college. And I couldn't do a calculus problem today if you put a gun to my head. I forgot calculus as quickly as I could years ago. Even though my son now, my middle son, teaches math in high school, I don't know if I could do an Algebra 2 problem if you put a gun to my head. I don't use it. There are a few of you out there who actually use calculus, and you have my deepest pity. This is not like calculus. This is not a decision that you and I make. And Oh, I know who Jesus... I believe. 98% of Americans say they believe in God. Check. That's not what He's asking for. He says, come follow me. Come be my student. Drink of me. Eat me. You and I, in a relationship, you finding out who you are through me because of me. This isn't a concept. It's a way of life. It's a relationship. It's a connection. And this relationship anchors our identity. We have several indicators or markers for our identity One of those markers is, periodically, you have to flash your driver's license. Your driver's license is an identity indicator. Or your birth certificate. Or a green card, for some of us. Or a passport. 
or a military ID for some, or, or work ID. These are identity indicators. And, and then as Alyssa said earlier, there are social indicators. You know, oh, uh, he's the funny guy, or that's the popular girl, or I'm shy, or I'm outgoing. There are social indicators. And then there are cultural indicators. And these indicators are usually indicators that we choose. There's our clothes or our car or our house. Diane and I were talking this week about how much those kinds of things tell others about ourselves. You know, if you just take a a snapshot of our house with our van out in front of it, you would know that we have children or we probably had children. We live in America, probably. We don't live in war West Virginia. You'd know certain things about our income. You might even be able to guess what part of the country we lived in by the the trees that were there, the sky around the bushes that are around our house. These are cultural identity indicators that mark us, ourselves really, and others. Some of these are official representations of who we are, and then others speak to others about it. They tell others about us. Then I think there are identity anchors. There are things that we sink our identity into. They become important. They form and inform who we are. There's family. And there's work or school for our children. And then there are biological identity anchors. Alyssa was talking about this. A tall guy. Old, balding guy. No comments. Cute girl. Girl with red hair biological identity anchors. We look in the mirror and it really forms and it it forms who we are. And then there are talent and skill identity anchors. I I know you all know how amazing Nate is. That's partly because, Nate, for those of you who are visiting, thanks for coming. Uh, Nate's the banjo player. He's an awesome banjo player. He's also an amazing guitar player. Nate has a little backpack guitar that, that he carries around the world, literally, with him everywhere he goes. He plays that thing all the time. So he's not only naturally talented, there's a lot of skill and it's developed over the years. These are identity indicators for us. Nate is the guitarist, the speaker, the engineer, the project manager. Some of you, that identity indicator is a a very powerful, potent identity indicator for you. You are the project manager who's been, by the way, promoted through several ranks. Or you're a mediocre project manager and that's who you are and you've had to wrestle that down and settle that with yourself. That's who you are. And you've had to do business with... You're not living out the story you thought you were going to live. Here's the thing. Any counselor, any spiritual guru, any friend worth their salt will tell us that we should not let the identity indicators become identity anchors, right? We shouldn't let the indicators like funny guy, popular girl, shy, outgoing. We shouldn't let the cultural indicators like clothes, car, house. We shouldn't let those become identity anchors. Because those are just symbols of who we are. We shouldn't let those anchor who we are. We shouldn't let those be like family or work or talent. You know what Jesus is telling us this morning? He's telling us no. Don't let either category be an anchor for your identity. Your identity doesn't come from your driver's license or your house. Your identity doesn't come from your family or your work. 
Your identity comes from your connection to me. You know, this is why we get ourselves in so much trouble, isn't it? This is why this is so important. We let our identity be anchored in family, and then when our children go through a horrible week or they do something terribly disappointing, and trust me, no matter how small they are, they will. When they do something terribly disappointing, we feel like failures. Our life unravels. What have I done? I'm worthless. Because our identity is anchored in something insubstantial that cannot support it. When our identity is anchored in our job and we lose our job or we get passed over for a promotion or we get demoted, we have to recalibrate. We are a failure. And that has to be recalibrated into who we are. And it does terrible emotional, even social damage. Jesus doesn't tell us to anchor His identity in Him and our connection to Him because He's an egomaniac, but because that's the way we were designed. And that's where identity can be found secure and firm, unmoved, and clear. Our identity needs to be anchored in Jesus. Here's why this is so important. Let me wrap up with one illustration. I was thinking last night, an incident from my own life that would illustrate the importance of identity, and I remembered, didn't ask your permission, Diane, but I remembered early in our marriage, Diane comes from upper middle income home. Not a wealthy home, but the kind of home that, uh, you know, her parents, if they lived in this area, would live in Ashburn or South Riding. They were part owner with other families of a, a couple of vacation homes, but this happened after Diane was an adult and her dad had more disposable income because he had five girls that he raised and put through college. So Diane's dad did very, very well. He was a manager of a very large area for uh, IBM for a number of years. I grew up in a home mostly with a single mom. She was a school teacher, well-educated, and did well, but she was a teenager during the Depression. And for those of you who know much about that generation, my mother never spent a nickel willingly. When my mom tore off aluminum foil, she would use that piece of aluminum foil for six years. You think I'm kidding. It would get folded up and put in our drawer. Nothing was ever thrown away in our household. So think about a nice, I'm not talking about exclusive, but think about a really nice department store like Neiman Marcus. Okay, think about the distance between Neiman Marcus and, say, Marshalls or Target. You know, still nice stuff. It's not Neiman Marcus. Okay, you've got to take the elevator down about five floors to get to Carolina Cash in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where you could buy clothes that were designed to fit no one, especially tall, skinny guys that were growing overnight. And we not only bought our clothes at Carolina Cash, I'm not kidding, we bought our clothes in the basement of Carolina Cash where they had the irregulars and the stuff that didn't sell upstairs because it was so ugly or it fit so badly. So until I was old enough to buy my own clothes, I bought clothes in the basement of Carolina Cash, which, you know, it doesn't set you up to be stylish walking down the halls of Evans Junior High or Spartanburg High School. And I marry into Diane's family. Not only is Diane's family an upper middle income family, but her dad is, I learned generosity 
through Diane and through her father. Her dad was the guy that would take, a bunch of people would go out to dinner to eat. Family, friends, didn't matter. And somehow Daryl always ended up with the check and paid for it. Her dad was the guy who would go to Blockbuster. Remember those in the 1840s? He would go out to Blockbuster and he would rent a stack of movies like this to bring home just for Christmas vacation, just for the family to enjoy. It wasn't like, in my house, if my mother rented a movie, everybody you knew and the neighbors better watch it with her because she just spent $2, buddy. So you're, set, you're watching this. And her dad was an amazing gift giver. And I don't mean expensive stuff. I mean, he, he could give expensive stuff but, and occasionally did. But it was always perfect. I mean, her dad would give them Christmas presents and every time the brothers-in-law and I would be like, you got it. are you kidding me? It was perfect. It was way better than anything we had gotten and that's the point. So, <laughs> Christmas and birthdays and anniversaries for Diane were an exercise in disappointment during the first... <laughs> I consistently, occasion after occasion, managed to lower the bar just a little bit more so she would expect less and less and less. And she, you know, Diane, she's awesome and wonderful and never expressed disappointment. And she would hold up the ill-fitting pair of corduroy pants that I bought her that she would never in a million years buy for herself. Oh, thank you. And then, I, of course, I never saw them worn. And then eight years later, when I'd forgotten about them finally, she turned them into goodwill. So this was how gift-giving was. And I realized about the second or third Christmas that this, was not, this wasn't funny for me. This is really devastating. I would give Diane a gift, and she would be happy, and she would love me, and she would also be a little disappointed for about an hour. But she loved me so much she'd get over it. But for me, it was a week. Because I didn't know how to do this. Here's the thing. I felt inadequate and unworthy because I was the kid that bought his clothes in the basement of Carolina Cash. It was an identity issue. I never got really great, still not great, at giving gifts to Diane, but I got free because I was able to identify that and find my identity in something more substantial. And some of you have had experiences over your life and you've heard messages over your life. You've been called worthless or fatty or dumb. And that has become a part of who you are. And if you don't get free from that, you'll never be who you were designed to be. And the only way to get free from that, the only way is to find the right anchor for your soul. To find the place where your identity is settled. Where it can be supported. Many of our emotional struggles, most of our temptations, and especially our failures in temptation, have their root in a confused identity or a false identity. Let's end with this. Look, that's why... Go, back, go read this later. That's why Romans 6 is, is probably the greatest chapter in the Bible addressing the specifics of overcoming temptation and kind of doing better with your life. And Paul starts that great chapter by saying, look, you know, because of God's grace is so expansive, and I won't go through all his argument up to that point, because God's grace is so amazing, 
Should we just keep on sinning? Does it matter? Of course we shouldn't, and it does matter. Then he says, don't you know that you who are baptized, those of you who've made the decision to step into Him, don't you know that you've been baptized actually not just in water, you've been baptized into Christ. You are literally buried with Him. It was you hung up on the cross with Him. And then the old you, the, the kid that bought his clothes in Carolina cash, the angry you, the depressed you, the one that tends to overworry and needs control about everything, that you was killed with Him. Buried, Paul says. And then, three days later, you were resurrected with Him. He goes on, he says, look, if we were united with Him like that in His death, that means we're also united with Him in His resurrection. That's who you are. And if you're united with Him in His resurrection, it means you're alive. Etc. Walking through our identity. And then the, the, maybe the penultimate point in that chapter, he says, so therefore, because of all of that, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Think about yourself that way. That's who you are. You're someone who you don't live here anymore. And whenever that rises up, even when you fail over here, you are, say to yourself, that's not who I am. My identity's here in Jesus. Let's pray. I don't know what to say, Lord. I pray that there are some of us this morning that need to be set free. And there are some of us this morning who have never chosen to find our identity in You. We might even think we believe, but we haven't found our identity in You. God, I pray that use what's been said and sung this morning to break past our defenses and open us up to You and living in You and finding our identity in You. And Lord, for those of us who've been walking this path for a while, I pray that You'd remind us who we are. And, you know, honestly, God, we come to You today with gratitude because I spent some time this week, Lord, thanking You for who I would be apart from You. And it's not pretty. And we give You permission this morning to remind us even of that. Our failures would be unrelenting. They would have this titanic tidal wave effect and impact on us if we're not anchored in You. If who we are is not anchored in You. So Lord, help us to know who we are in You. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.